make sure you love it even when you hate it. Um, you know, I, I think the the thing that I often say about starting a company, I think it's pretty much the hardest thing that any person can do, right? Uh, I mean, you, you said, you know, you don't even know if one in a million people has an easy time of it. And, you know, I, I think you're completely right, right? Every single decision is so difficult, right? And yeah, and it's going to be incredibly difficult. And I think that the people that I see that aren't successful are people that just think that, you know, it's going to be an easy path to be a millionaire, right? It is not that. There are much easier paths to be a millionaire, right? If you've got some patience, right? Um, it's, you know, if you want something that is going to let you make a mark on the world, right? And something that is going to respond and give you back what you put into it, right? That's that's what a startup is, right? But it is it is brutal. And, and you know, make, make no mistake, you know, however hard you is, however hard you think it is, it's going to be hard. Hey, everyone. This is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com and grab some time with us to chat. Now, today we have another great guest on the podcast, Slater Victoroff. And as a quick introduction to Slater, so he grew up in uh, in LA at a and uh, went to school at a program at a smaller program for high school. I think it was only forty two kids in his graduating class. Uh, was on the academic team, and I w- and in his words, you know, was the only person that I've ever aware of that had issues with failing classes while on teams and be able to make the standard to be on the team. So that's a, a fun uh, fun path. And then uh, had the view that you can be learning or you can be going to class, but you can't do both until he. Uh, ran into someone else that uh, gave him a bit of a different direction or a different perspective, uh, found that he loved school um, and uh, found a school that he loved that kind of lined up with allowing him to do both learning and being in class and doing those both times. Um, he withdrew all of his or all of his applications from any other colleges, got rejected by that school, got waitlisted, took a gap year, came back and went to school there, started uh, doing a software business while in school, um, raised some seed round for the business, dropped out and been pursuing the startup ever since. So with that much as an introduction and hopefully mostly accurate, welcome on the podcast, Slater. No, thank you so much for having me. That was, uh, yeah, that was, that was absolutely perfect. That was uh, a, a lot from memory. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, with that much, I condensed a much or longer journey into the 32nd version, but let's unpack it a bit. So tell us a little bit about uh, growing up in LA, going to high school and where your journey started from there. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, like you said, I think one of the things that was strange is that even though I was going to public school the whole time, I was in this very small uh, sort of magnet program. You know, my high school class did have 42 students in it. One of the other things that's kind of funny is uh, my school was all the way across the city, you know, and this is something that I think uh, certainly folks on the East Coast don't quite understand is just the, the scale of sprawl in L.A., right? So I was probably 25 miles from where I lived to where my school was. Uh, And I had to figure out how to basically get from point A to point B because the school buses didn't come anywhere near my house. Uh, And so actually sort of all through high school, I was waking up at 430 in the morning, uh, getting on, it was, uh, you know, three buses and, you know, like a bike ride uh, to get, you know, all the way to school. Um, So, you know, it was, it it was like very interesting. I think high school was a, it was a great time. You know, I think I made some really, really excellent friends. You know, there was always that, that, you know, one, one teacher that made, uh, made everything uh, fun and worthwhile, you know? Mm. 
Now, one question that I'll have to hit on just because I, you know, it doesn't come up very much is your your auto hope your hobby or or you know whatever you want to call it, and the things you did after school or uh, for free time was academic team. And yeah, at the same yeah, time, absolutely. you're having the issue of qualifying to be on the academic teams due to your yeah. academic standing. So how did that work out? <laughs> Yeah, you know, so I think it was really interesting. It was sort of like what, what you said, right, where I felt like I could either learn or go to school. So the teams I was on, uh, just, you know, in case in case folks are familiar with them, I was on Science Bowl, which is, you know, a Jeopardy-style competition. I was on Oceans Bowl, which is an ocean sciences-centric uh, competition. Science Olympiad, which is, you know, test-taking and sort of building physical projects. I did a whole bunch of, you know, other math and, and science competitions, you know, as a finalist in, you know, Bio-Olympiad, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Um, and the thing that was, you know, very strange to me, you know, I think my, my college counselor just thought I was very stubborn. And I think that's, that's probably a lot of it, frankly, is just that I really knew what I cared about and what I wanted to be learning. Um, and one thing that was really tough for me is that in, in my school system, even though it was great, you know, I think I got to be in touch with, you know, really, really excellent teachers, but I was only allowed, uh, in my whole four years of high school, I was only given two electives, Right. Uh, and, and that's actually, you know, very standard for LA. And I think that's, that's kind of a tragedy, right? And that's a lot of what led to this really tough situation. And, you know, frankly, you know, I had a couple of teachers that just by bad luck uh, happened to be bullies, right? And that, that kind of, you know, set, set the relationship up to be difficult in the early days. No, and that makes sense. And yeah, and I think that, I don't know that I quite take it to the extreme that you might have, but there is sometimes a difference between learning in, in reality versus what you're doing in classrooms. And, you know, that's why I would, you know, so I went and I probably went to the opposite end. So I got four degrees and uh, went to mm-hmm. way too much schooling. But, you know, even when I did like, for example, the MBA, I would always joke with my wife that about half of it was fluffy and half of it was worthwhile. And that's probably about right for most of my schooling is about half of that. I found like, okay, I can see where this is applicable, where this is grounded reality. And the other half, I'm just saying, well, yeah. this is classic. You know, I, I, it feels like it's filler. I think that's exactly right. And I think my my real problem is just that, you know, my my level of tolerance for busy work was pretty much zero. And, and that's exactly right. You know, if maybe half of it was busy work and half was really interesting, I would do half and that's an F, right? <laughs> and half is still an F, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it was, you know, it was, it was really interesting because, you know, all my test scores, uh, you know, were very, very high, but it would usually be like, you know, I was missing all of the homework, which was, you know, 30% of the grade, just, you know, with all the stuff I was doing, I, I didn't really have time to do it, frankly. Uh, I actually did, I did a whole course, uh, I did AP bio without the textbook, uh, because it was too heavy, and I didn't want to keep bringing it back and forth. <laughs> Fair enough, so yeah. now we'll, we'll keep on with your story, so mm-hmm. I assume that it, regardless of the, like, you finally did graduate, you were looking to go to colleges, and you're yes. trying to figure out basically the same issue of, you can learn, you can go to class, we can't do both, now tell us a little bit about how you found the college that you decided that met that in the middle somewhere how you kind of how your journey went there yeah no it was kind of I'd say it was like a by accident you know as as all great stories uh, are you know I I because this is not what I assumed was going to happen in school you know everyone knows the trope of the kid that you know never goes to class and then does well on the tests so actually what I was looking for in school was a school where that was okay and appropriate Right. So it's like, hey, I like that's fine, you know, but I've already decided, you know, I'm going to like, you know, take as many classes as I can, never show up, take all the tests. Right. And I'll get a degree that way or something like that. 
Um, and a, a lot of schools actually are, are totally fine with that, right? You know, a lot of universities, you know, outside of, you know, sort of your first year where you do have to show up to class are, are fine with you operating like that. Uh, and, you know, when I kind of asked that question, you know, at, you know, Columbia or, you know, MIT or a lot of those schools, they're like, oh yeah, you know, we, we you know, tons of kids do that. Um, when I showed up at Olin though, it was totally different, right? I asked like, oh, you know, do they really care if I show up to class or do homework? And the kids would look at me with this, with this weird face, like, why wouldn't you want to go to class? It's like, <laughs> what do you mean? Why wouldn't I want to go to class? And it, it was, so one of the things that was really cool about Olin is that it did a two-phase uh, application. So actually I applied not because I thought it was interesting uh, at all. Um, I applied because I had a free ride, a full ride scholarship. Um, you know, they were one of those like weird, only engineering, like tiny schools just started up. It was experimental. So I'm like, this is cool. This is kind of interesting, but I didn't take it that seriously when I applied. Um, but then, I but then uh, if you pass on the academic merits, then they bring you to Candidates Weekend, where something like three times the number of students they'll eventually uh, like accept come to the school for a weekend to meet students and hang out with people uh, and get a sense of what the place is like. And one of the coolest things they do is they give you this design challenge that is basically just a... Um, it's, it's a completely impossible design challenge. So for us, what, what they had you do was uh, there were two teams. You were separated on two different floors. You couldn't talk to each other. And you had to make two different like articulating devices that would like accept water and pass water to the other one. And, you know, like this crazy kind of device. And you had to make the whole thing out of, you know, like a brick of styrofoam and, you know, 10 inches of duct tape something like that. It's like completely impossible. No one even kind of succeeded, but it was so much fun to be working with someone else on sort of this impossibly difficult problem. And I think it really turned me on to that reality of you can learn so much by trying to do something, even if you don't ultimately succeed in executing it. And uh, it really, really changed, changed my mind about uh, education. No, and I think that there, there's a lot of merit to it. I mean, now I'm going to go back and infuse. So I'm in agreement with a lot of it now. I still think your college education, if nothing else, and I don't think it should just be nothing else, having that degree can oftentimes open up or ways that you can go about getting a job that a lot of times, based on how society is set up, you need the degree in order to land the job oftentimes. Mm -hmm. now, not always, and I think there's always exceptions to the rule, but I think that a lot of times education should be different. It should be geared more towards getting experience, actually getting real world application. I think there should be times where you can go out and actually do or work in the area or the field that you want to work in as part of the education. You should have people that are out in the field. So I think there's a lot of things that could be different, um, but you know, we're, while we'd like it to be different, I don't know that we're, we, me and you are going to be able to make enough of that change to have that impact, at least not yet. That's true. But, but, you know, I think one one thing that I think is interesting is, you know, people look at me, you know, dropping out from school and they're like, oh, you see, you know, college education is not useful. I say, no, 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 you, you totally don't understand why I dropped out. I actually think it's much more the reverse. It's just that I happened to get so much value out of this school in three years, right, that it was enough for me to go in and take the next step. Right. And that that's amazing. Like to me, that's, you know, the best possible commendation I can give to the schools. Like they gave me everything I needed in three years. Um, most schools can't even give you everything you need in four. Right. Uh, so I think, you know, it's a, it's a it's a big merit of that style of education. Is it just like worked really well for me? No, and I think that's great. Now, one thing I have to just jump back with a little bit in time is so. You found this school. It was a different experience. Yes, you know, it, was, right. it sounded like it would match up much more with what you were looking for and kind of or meet your learning style, so to speak. 
and you get, and so you pull all your college applications and say, okay, I don't want to go to any school. This is a school for me. And then yeah. you get rejected and then waitlisted and then you had to wait for a year. So is that a bit of a nervous thing that, okay, I finally yeah. found a school that works for me and they don't want me. Oh, it was, it was, it was awful. Honestly, it was really, really tough. And, you know, I, I understand in hindsight, you know, exactly what happened, you know, and I kind of, uh, it, it's funny, actually, in the interview I was in, I, I didn't come across well, because I really, you know, I was, it was relatively early in the weekend, and I was still in that mentality of, you know, I'm not going to show up to class, right, I'm just going to show up at the test, and that's how I'm going to do this school. I didn't get it yet. Um, it was actually funny, one of the interviewers that initially rejected me, I ended up tutoring his daughter some years later. Um, so, you know, things, things really do, do change over time. Um, but one thing that was, I mean, frankly, at the time, it just, it just felt awful, right? You know, I, I wasn't going to anywhere. All of my friends were, you know, going off to school and I thought that was it. You know, I was looking at schools with late decisions. I was applying to places overseas. I'm like, oh, you know, like that's, that's over, you know, I'm going to kind of give up. And then my, uh, actually it was my stepmother. She, you know, really pushed me. She's like, you know, you really like this place, this place for you. Just, just give it another whack, you know, just, just kind of like talk to admissions, just ask them, you know, like beg them, see if there's anything that they can do. Um, and I did, you know, eventually I'm like, you know what, whatever, like, uh, nothing could possibly go wrong, right? And things could only go well. And eventually said, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll let you on the wait list. Still didn't feel good because I think it's something, certainly in the US, right? Taking a gap year is not like a positive thing. It's like, oh, you had to take a gap year. And I, I certainly felt awful at the time. I would say in hindsight, it was probably one of the best things that I ever did, right? It was really, really important for a lot of for a lot of reasons, right? And I think that where I am now, a lot of people sort of look at me, they're like, wow, you know, I wish that I could have a year just to, you know, like have off and actually have that time because you, you really don't have opportunities to do that throughout life. Uh, and, you know, I, I lived in Nepal for three months, you know, I did research at UCLA and I did, you know, tutoring in the area and I, you know, went back and studied martial arts in China for a couple months. So, you know, I did, I made use of the time. Now, and I'll give my biased opinion, which is probably the reason I think that people have a, I think gap years can be good and I think they can be terrible in the sense mm -hmm. that if you use it time wisely, that it's basically, I think what a lot of people figure is just, hey, this is a year that you go play, you don't make any money, you live off of your parents and it's just a way that you can continue to play rather than grow up, which is if it's in that camp, mm -hmm. then I tend to say, okay, gap years probably aren't the most beneficial thing. If on the other hand, you're saying, no, you know, I'll figure out a way to work or get, go get some work experience or figure out, oh, yeah, I'm not ready to, you know, do something, but I'm going to still be productive. I'll still, you know, I'm not going to just going to live off my parents or, you know, kind of live in, you know, the typical it's, it's live in the basement type of thing. Point. Then I think it's worthwhile and it can be very beneficial and, and give a lot of good experiences. So I think that's where people usually think of the former. If you're doing the latter, then I think it's a lot more defendable. So now we'll fast forward. Super oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I was just gonna say, I, I think it's super, super fair. And that's why I use the word opportunity, right? Is yeah. because like the idea for me that, and I think you're right. I think people do do this, but like sitting in a basement for a year, like I would go nuts, right? Like that, that sounds like the worst thing that I could possibly, possibly do with that time, right? That would feel like such an incredible waste of, you know, again, what, what in hindsight was an amazing opportunity. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm right there. So, so now, so you take the gap year, you go to school, you, as you already mentioned, now if we're fast forwarding back to where we're at, three years was enough and you were going to school. Now, when you hit those three years, was it intending to finish the degree and you had a great idea and an opportunity that kind of started as a side hustle or kind of where did that transition make where you're going to school and you Absolutely. started the business? 
Yeah. So um, the way I would say is, you know, it was absolutely never our plan to drop out of school, right? I would say we waited for as long as possible. And I, you know, it felt silly in hindsight because people were telling us all the time, you know, as Indico was doing well and we were going to school because there there was, you know, real overlap. They're like, oh, you guys know you're not going to finish school, right? I'm like, nope, we're definitely going to finish school. I have to finish school. It's going to happen. And so what happened was that in our sophomore year, me and Alec Radford, who ended up being my co-founder, we started doing these competitions. Um, have you ever heard of Kaggle? I have not, but I, I'm it's, excited to hear about it. Yeah, it, it, it's this awesome uh, sort of crowdsourced data science competitions. You know, basically companies would come, they'd upload data sets for, you know, predict if someone's going to be admitted to the hospital in the next two weeks, right? Uh, predict the weather, right? Like all sorts of stuff all, all over the place. And basically whoever gets the best accuracy, whoever builds the best algorithm wins the cash prize. Um, but what was really cool about it is that it wasn't just randos because these cash prizes were significant, right? I mean, these were hundreds of thousands, you know, millions of dollars in some cases, right? Uh, so you had top PhD students from around the country. And what it really gave us was a place to test our metal in kind of an objective way, right? Uh, so me and Alec, we started doing these casual competitions together. Um, and, you know, a lot of things happened on sort of the more techie side, but shortly we started doing quite well. Right. We started realizing, hey, you know, after, you know, kind of a year of uh, working on this, maybe we're not just uh, random kids. Right. Maybe we're actually pretty good at this. Um, and then and then there was a bet, you know, some folks reached out. They're like, hey, you've been doing some great work. We'd love to do some work with you. And I just said, hey, if we can make a thousand dollars in the next two weeks, uh, then we have to make a company. And, and that was the bet. And I was like, all right, you know, sure. That that seems fair to me. It's like you you figure it out. You get the contracts like I'll do the work and we. And, and we did, you know, we more than doubled that target. And then we, we had to start a company. And then for all of junior year, we went to school and did the company um, to varying degrees of success. You know, towards the end of that, the schoolwork definitely started to suffer a bit, um, which, you know, it, it happens, but it was for, for an all right reason. And then out in our junior summer, we got admitted to Techstars Boston. And then we raised, uh, and, then, and then we're like, all right, you know, we'll, we'll take a year off. Uh, and then we raised a $3 million seed round and they were like, all right, well, I guess we're not going back to school now. No, and I, I think that, you know, that seems like that's a lot of times the course that you tend to do is, okay, hey, this starts out as a side hustle. Then the side hustle starts to actually make some money. Then it makes enough money. They're saying, okay, you kind of hit the crossroads to where if you're taking someone's money, you actually promise that you'll deliver, then you mm-hmm. have to put in a full-time effort and it gets to be too onerous to try and both do school full-time and do a full-time job. And you're faced with that decision. And, you know, sometimes exactly. it's the right decision. And other times you're saying, okay, that was fun. Now we'll go finish my degree. And so it sounds like it worked out well for you on, on that end of, Hey, it was a good decision. Decided it was, you know, got the education I need, got the springboard for where I was going to, you're going to start your business. And so it worked out and it was a good path. So now I'll kind of do the follow-up question, which is, so you make the decision. Okay. We, you know, started out, we made some money, the bet went through, we got the seed round and decided, okay, dropping out of school, going to pursue this full time, going to take that seed money and build a business. Has it gone well? Has it been a good decision? It's taken off like a rocket ship. Has it been bumpy or how's that gone? Do you wish you'd stayed in school or kind of what's the end of that story? Or the beginning I mean, of that story? No, it, it, it's a great question. And I will say it, it's sort of like yes to everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I'd say where I stand today, it was a great decision. I'm extremely happy that I did it, right? And, and you know, obviously Indico has been very, very successful as a result. You know, we've raised $35 million. We've got 70 employees, right? We've got Fortune 500 customers and we're, you know, we're, we're really making an impact, which, which is awesome. It's, it's an insane, honestly, to see it, like having gone from, from a literal dorm room startup to this point. So 
that's incredible. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, it has been incredibly bumpy, right? I mean, you know, especially as a first-time entrepreneur, right? I mean, this stuff is incredibly hard. There's just so much. I think maybe there's the one in a million that has a smooth time of it, but I mean- yeah, That might be even generous odds, but I, If that person exists, <laughs> if that has ever happened, right? But no, I mean, it was it was brutally difficult, right? And I don't think people really prepare you for that. Um, and, and it's this interesting thing where I think- um, in, in some ways, right, a 70-person company is very, very different from a two-person startup. But in some ways, it's very much the same, right? It's still, the hustle is so key, right? You know, I'm still, like, I still cold call people, right? Like, I don't do it with, you know, all of my time anymore. It's not, like, the best use. But, like, the hustle is always so, so important, right? Um, and, you know, it's like, as your company gets bigger, your problems also get bigger, right? So even, it's a... Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's been interesting. It's been a wild ride for sure. No, and if we, you know, I think that the difference, it's always interesting if you start your own company versus, you know, you come in later and you're the CEO or you take over, there's a big difference. And I think that the level of hustle is always bigger or better with the founder in the sense that you were in the dorm room, you were starting it out, and there's still the flashback. It's still that fear that no matter how well you're doing now, that it's still all going to fall apart and it's, still, it's not going to be successful. And it's hard to replace that and infuse that to somebody that's come along later that seen the success, seen the money coming in, seen the revenue. And they're saying, oh, well, of course, this is a stable company. So I, I definitely think there's a lot, lot there. I'm really glad to say that our CEO, you know, he's been a founder before, right? Like actually all of our senior leaders, right? Like they've been in that kind of founder role before. I mean, now that's maybe starting to change now that we're getting a bit bigger, but it's just so important. Right. Like you, you, you need the guy who knows what it's like to run to the airport because he scheduled his meetings back to back. Right. Like right. you just need that in the early days. Right. I, I think um, there, there's definitely a lot of truth to that. So, yeah. Well, now as we've kind of caught up to a little bit of, you know, what your journey is, where you're at today and a little bit of where you're going. Great time to jump to the two questions I always ask at the end of each episode. So we'll jump to those now. First question I'll ask is along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what'd you learn from it? So the worst business decision I made, and I don't want to like give specific names out here, but basically there was an advisor in the very early days that was, you know, extremely senior, had a really, really high pedigree. And we basically just, you know, brought them into the company and, you know, gave them a whole bunch of, uh, you know, money and equity and stuff and just did everything that they said. Um, and it was awful decision. And I think that was, I, and I think that was sort of the singular worst and kind of biggest issue with uh, sort of our first couple of years as a company, frankly. Right. And I think that, you know, and then the moral is not like, don't take advice from people, right. Advice is really important. Right. And you need to understand, you know, from people who have gone there before. But I think what we didn't understand is that if there were a repeatable way to make a business, there'd be no point in entrepreneurship, right? Like no one knows how to make your business, right? If they knew how to make your business, they would be making your business, right? And, and that, that's something that we really lost sight of, right? Is that, you know, they are just sources of advice. We still know best at the end of the day. And I think that, that was the biggest mistake, frankly, is like I lost sight of that, stop trusting my gut. 
No, and I think there's a lot of truth. I mean, a lot of times, and I, without getting into your specific search or situations, you'll mm. you'll start out as a business. You'll be you, and you know, maybe a co-founder or an employee or two, but really small in the dorm room, so to speak, or in the garage or wherever it might be. And you start to grow it, and you don't know any better, so you just you know, kind of you, whatever sticks, you start to build it, you start to grow it. But you know, and you need get to get traction, and then you get to a point where you start to bring on investors or other things, and you feel like, well, we need an established CEO, and we need someone that does that. And I think to your point, people often kind of feel like, okay, we need someone else that knows what they're doing. And most of the time, nobody knows what. Now, there are th- good yeah. practices. Now, it's not like no, hundred percent. But you know, there are good practices that you should be implementing. You know, looking at profit margins, doing financial statements, looking at you know having a, a, a tracker, you know, a path forward, and what's the next generation of products and those types. That's always good. But on the other hand, just because somebody else, you know, you're told that somebody else can do it better, a lot of times you can do it just as good. So I think that there's a lot of times that feeling like you need to have someone else come in to do it when really you're going to do the best job a lot of the time. So I think that that's definitely a great takeaway um, and and definitely makes sense. Second question, which is, you're talking to somebody that's just getting into a startup or small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Make sure you love it even when you hate it. Um, You know, I think the the thing that I often say about starting a company, I think it's pretty much the hardest thing that any person can do, right? Uh, I mean, you, you said, you know, you don't even know if one in a million people has an easy time of it. And, you know, I, I think you're completely right, right? Every single decision is so difficult, right? And yeah, and it's going to be incredibly difficult. And I think that the people that I see that aren't successful are people that just think that, you know, it's going to be an easy path to be a millionaire right? It is not that. There are much easier paths to be a millionaire, right? If you've got some patience, right? Um, It's, you know, if you want something that is going to let you make a mark on the world, right? And something that is going to respond and give you back what you put into it, right? That's, that's what a startup is, right? But it is, it is brutal. And, and, you know, make, make no mistake, you know, however hard you is, however hard you think it is, it's going to be hard. I think so. And I, and I think that that's one where, you know, it gets a bit glamorized. You uh, watch the movie, watch the TV show, you read the book or anything else. And you always kind of hear just the end point of it successful. And you never really hear the whole journey of, hey, there were times where we didn't know how we we're going to make payroll or guess what? I was the one oh, emptying yeah. the garbages and doing hiring, firing the next day. And then I had to do marketing and sales and then I had to do product development and I didn't know this was going to work. And you kind of miss a lot of that. And I think people just kind of hear that, hey, they're an overnight success when it's really an overnight success, 10 years in the making. And Absolutely. even at that, you don't hear half the time that majority of the businesses never make it. And a lot of them, you just, you don't hear about all the failures. You only hear about the successes. So yeah, definitely I, I agree mean, on all fronts. UiPath is a great example, just because now they're, you know, the, the hot IPO and they've been doing so well, right? But they they just kind of puttered along for, for six years or something before they figured it out. And then, you know, they were they were off to the races, but it's exactly that. It's this, it's this overnight success that took a decade, right? Absolutely. So yeah. Well, as we wrap up, if people want to find out more, they want to be a customer, they want to be a client, they want to be an employee, they want to be an investor, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out to you, contact you, find out more? Absolutely. Indicodata.ai for all things Indico. You can see me at slater.website. Uh, you know, ask me a question on Quora, follow me on Twitter. All right. Well, I definitely encourage everybody to reach out in any or any or all the ways that uh, were mentioned and, or mentioned and definitely a great resource to have. So 
Well, thank you again, Slater, for coming on the podcast. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell and you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, we'd love to share your journey. Just go to inventiveguest.com. Also, as a listener, make sure to click subscribe, click like, click share, because we want to make sure to share the journeys as much as possible. Last but not least, if you ever need help with your patents or trademarks or anything else with your business, just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat. We're always happy to help. Thank you again, Slater, and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thank you so much.